Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll hear from Arielle Nobile, a woman whose post-September 11th breakdown forced her to examine her life's direction and her own sanity. Also on the show, a listener wants to know how to tell people she's tired of talking about her loss, and I'll offer my thoughts on Cheryl Sandberg's new book, Option B. Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who gives people the tools, space, and support to come back to life after loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone, because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. there and welcome to the second episode of coming back. I am so, so jazzed to have you here. Uh, Doing a podcast has been a bit of a lifelong dream of mine. And so I'm really stoked that you're going to come along for the journey. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to the first episode of coming back, which is a little bit more of an intro episode. It's going to be about the mission of the podcast and kind of what attitudes and what themes and what resources you can expect going forward. And I also tell a little bit of my personal grief story and coming back story. So that's definitely worth listening to before you jump into the full on long form episodes, but feel free to listen in whatever order you like. It's all, it's all up to you. So I'd like to start off the show with a current event in the world of grief. And a big thing that's happening right now is the release of Cheryl Sandberg's new book, Option B. If you don't know, Cheryl is the chief operating officer of Facebook and author of Lean In, which talks about the power of women in the workplace. Uh, she made huge waves on Facebook in 2015 by posting this, this soul-bearing very raw glimpse into her life just 30 days after her husband died unexpectedly while they were on vacation. Um, That post and her coming back journey manifested itself into her new book, which is titled Option B, and that's co-authored with Wharton professor Adam Grant. So I've been waiting for this book for a bit and was super thrilled to read it this month. I found it was the last copy at a bookstore and I was like, I have to have this right now. Um, One of the reviews on the back of the book said that option B was the perfect mix of science and memoir, and I can definitely raise a second hand on that. There were were moments of science and psychology where um, some technical terms and phrases came in, and this is what I'm feeling, and here's some words to put to it. Um, But then there were also moments of here's what's happening with my mom, here's what was happening with my kids, uh, here's what was happening at work, which was very real and very... Um, just like her Facebook post was very raw and soul bearing and, and just interesting to read because while grief is a shared experience, we will all grieve differently. There were two uh, bits of the book that really stuck out for me, two major points. And the first one was called the three P's that stunt recovery. Uh, I remember learning these actually in psychology class in college, but viewing them through the lens of Cheryl's examples was, was really, really helpful. So just to give you a little gloss over of the three P's, they are personalization, which is the thinking that the loss is your fault, pervasiveness, which is the thinking that the loss will affect and saturate all areas of your life, 
and permanence is the last one. And this is thinking that the aftershock of the loss will last forever into eternity. And we all know people who are practicing one or more of these three Ps, or it might be you. I know um, coming off of my own loss, permanence was was very, very big for me. I felt that the effects of my loss with the intensity that I had them was going to last forever. Um, and to give you some more examples for personalization, um, this may be adult children uh, who are afraid that they stress their mom to death, their aging mother to death, when they persuaded her to go on a trip, maybe when she wasn't feeling well and she died very shortly after that. For pervasiveness, it might be the divorced man who feels that losing his job, in addition to just having lost his marriage, will saturate his dating life, his kids' life, his home life, his finances, his health, his happiness, and his faith. And for permanence, this could apply to a mother of a stillborn baby who feels that the aftershock of loss and that that pain and the grief and the agony and the dreams that are now gone, all of that lasting forever. So these are the three Ps, personalization, pervasiveness, permanence. All of these mindsets, when they're held to and clung to and believed in, they hinder our coming back. So I thought that was really great to see so clearly in the book, because a lot of times we feel things but can't quite put words to them. And these came in the book with their own definitions, but they also came with examples, uh, which was which was helpful to read and a great refresher from that college psychology course. And then the other bit of option B that I really latched on to, and I actually wrote it on my mirror, was a simple quote, and it was Cheryl's predicted mantra for post-traumatic growth. There's a section of the book where she goes through five steps uh, that two scientists created for growing post-trauma, post-loss, post-grief. And to sum it all up, she she wrote this quote that just fits so perfectly, I think. And she writes, I am more vulnerable than I thought, but much stronger than I ever imagined. Yeah. Let that one sink in for a second. I am more vulnerable than I thought, but much stronger than I ever imagined. I had to read this three times because when I read it, I got chills for days. It was just absolutely fantastic. And put another way or put into my own words and my own story, I translate it as, I never thought I could feel so much pain. But I also never thought I could choose this much joy. Yeah. So that really resonated with me. That really stuck with me. And I just confirmed through her book on on grief and loss and resilience and coming back that coming back is is wicked cool. It's hard and we have to choose it. But this book is is just a beautiful illustration of not just the science and the psychology of coming back, but but the story of a woman who shares these big and little truths of what happens after loss. So if you're in a place in your grief where you're itching to kind of start the coming back process to start either taking action or examining your ideas about loss or just connecting through words with another person who has lost, I would definitely say pick it up. And then whenever you finish with it, 
um, let me know what you thought about it and then share it with somebody else who really needs to read it. It's, it's a collection of words that's definitely worth spreading around. Up next, I'll answer a listener question about what to do when you're tired of talking about your loss, aka answering the dreaded, how are you? Alright, so let's get to today's question. Paige from Charlotte writes, Dear Shelby, When lots of well-meaning people keep asking about your tough life situation or your grief, and it wears you out to keep talking about it, what is a nice way to tell them you don't want to talk about it? Well, first I want to say that Paige put the word nice in capital letters, which I absolutely love. We have all been in this situation where we really want to tell people to back off, but struggle with finding a way to say it nicely. And Especially when we're overwhelmed with grief, our brains aren't exactly wired to stick up for us in a conventionally, I'm using air quotes right now, a conventionally nice way. So to be nice, we either fake a smile and give them all the latest updates on our situation, which is exhausting for us, or we scowl and shrug and mumble something like fine, which doesn't really help us feel heard. Our interactions with other people are a big part of coming back. How people respond to our loss and how we respond to the people who respond to our loss can make or break relationships at a really critical time in our lives. Um, So if we feel hounded, if we feel prodded at, if we feel like people are only asking to gossip about us, um, that can kind of put some strain on some relationships and might possibly even end them. And ultimately, what we want as people who have just experienced loss, as people who are grieving, is to feel respected and accepted and listened to. And I guess um, not stared at like a like a goldfish in a bowl. So how do we tell people nicely, as Paige so eloquently wrote in all capital letters, that we don't want to talk about the death or the divorce or the surgery or the job search or the house fire? How do we respond to yet another, how are you? Or how are you doing? First, we should remember that for the most part, people are coming at us from a really kind place. And while there is the occasional nosy neighbor or gossipy congregation member at your church or other religious institution, most people who are asking about your loss are well-meaning. And Paige actually used this uh, phrase, well-meaning, in her email. People don't know or don't remember that you're tired of talking about your loss, probably because your loss isn't a main focus in their lives. And seeing you reminds them to check in with you and see how you're doing. So starting from this headspace of they probably don't know that this is invasive and exhausting can make the people asking the questions seem a little less probing and a little more caring. So when it comes to actually responding to their question, you can respond in a couple of ways. I'm always a big advocate for speaking honestly about where you are in your grief journey. So here are some options for you. The first one is if you really don't want to go into any details about your situation, what's going on, how you are, you could say something like, thank you so much for asking. I'm really not up to talking about it right now. And depending on your relationship to them, you could just leave it at, I don't want to talk about it today. And in these no details interactions, it's important to say today or right now 
So I'm not interested in talking about it today. I don't want to talk about it right now because those phrases today and right now represent moments in time. It doesn't mean that you never want to talk about your loss with this person again, or you never want to talk to them again. It just conveys that right here, right now, today, in this moment, you don't want to talk about your loss. So your second option, if you're wanting to provide some details about your situation, you could say something like, we're managing all right with the kids and the grandparents coming in, thank you for asking. Or it's been really tricky tracking down all of our doctors this week, thank you so much for checking in. And saying thank you for asking or thank you for checking in is a polite way, a nice way of saying, I appreciate you asking, but that's all I'm going to offer today. And That just gives the person asking, how are you, enough of an update to know that you're okay and you're weathering the storm or you're surviving and that you're managing without inviting them to ask more questions of you. And then the last option in this is to answer briefly and then redirect the conversation to something happening in their lives. So you can use the no details or some details examples that I used earlier and then redirect to something that's happening in their lives. So Thank you so much for asking. I'm really not up to talking about it right now, but I did see on Facebook that your daughter just finished her watercoloring class. Tell me about that. And this lets the person know that you don't want to talk about your loss today, but that you're still interested in talking to them. Again, it doesn't shut down conversation completely. It just redirects it. And if for some reason they're hesitant to share joys or updates in their own lives because you are grieving It's okay to remind them that you're still interested in the details and the everyday happiness in their lives. And in fact, that might even bring you some happiness. Grief does not turn us off to caring about our friends and and family and the events happening in their lives. We can still be happy for other people and, and be grieving at the same time. And then lastly, I just want to add as a note, if if they're pushing and pushing and pushing for answers, again, respond with honesty, but something a little bit more blunt. So something like, I'm feeling tired and I really don't want to talk about it today. Thank you for asking. Or if you really do want to talk to them about it, but at a later date, uh, something really helpful to do would be to request a time. So to say something like, look, I'm really swamped with planning his memorial right now, but if you could call me in a week, I would really appreciate it. And that just guarantees that that you'll be getting a check-in from someone who cares about you. And then they also get to hear how your loss is going and be able to support you through that process. So that's what I've got for you, Paige. I hope that answered your question. Uh, If you've maneuvered a post-grief conversation gracefully, or if you have other tips for telling people to back off in a nice way, (laughs) uh, leave a voicemail for the show at 312-725-3043 or email shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. I would absolutely love uh, to hear what you have to say and share your tips with our listeners. You can also ask your own question to be featured on an upcoming show, again, by leaving a voicemail at 312-725-3043 or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. And you can find both of those contacts in the show notes. Next up, we'll talk to Arielle Nobile about her post-9-11 breakdown and how she came back to life after her loss. Arielle Nobile is the founder, CEO, and chief creative officer of Legacy Connections Films, a filmmaking business specializing in personal documentary since 2005. A major focus of her work is the idea of belonging— 
She received a Hugo Television Award in 2012 for her six-part public television show, Belonging in Boulder, set in Boulder, Colorado, and is now working on a new documentary web series, Belonging in the USA, Stories from Our Neighbors. She's also working on her personal documentary, Into the World, a story of recovery from the mental breakdown she experienced after September 11, 2001. Arielle, her husband, her six-year-old daughter, and their three cats currently live just outside of Chicago, where Arielle was raised. This interview was recorded via phone. So let's jump in right away, whatever order you want to tell it in, however you want to lay it out there. Let's start with the law story. Um, so, you know, I saw I saw your post on Facebook and it just triggered. I think that, I mean, to just sort of frame it, I feel like loss is something that we don't necessarily acknowledge much in our culture. and there's so many different kinds of losses. <laughs> and in a sense, my loss story is a loss of, I would say it's a loss of innocence story. And it's sort of a loss of a fantasy of a life that I thought I wanted um, in a certain sense. So I was living in New York. I had gone to school there. I had always wanted to be a movie star, wanted to be an actress, went to theater school. And I graduated in 2001 and moved back to Chicago, and then 9-11 happened, and it just, like, ripped my guts open, as it did for so many people. And my reaction was to move right back to New York, like, I literally moved back there about a month later, and go to ground there in the middle of the night and start filming, like, at 3 in the morning with a friend, because I just needed to, like, I felt this guilt that I hadn't been there. Um, but this is not the lost story. <laughs> this is the prelude to the lost story. I mean, that was a huge loss, but I was perfectly, I was very fortunate because I didn't lose anyone in 9-11 personally. I knew a lot of people in New York, but thank goodness they were all artists and not really Wall Street, you know, or near Wall Street. So I spent the next year basically obsessively researching terrorism, war, tyranny, torture, genocide, and just some very, very dark, dark themes. I am an empath. I am a highly sensitive person. I did not know that there was a word for that then. I just thought, you know, I was sort of always told you're too sensitive or you're this or that, or, you know, that's probably why it was a good fit for me to be an actor, because I can tune in and tap into emotions very um, easily. Mm -hmm. And this basically all... I was making a documentary, but it didn't lead to a documentary. It led me to a breakdown. And I found myself in my Brooklyn apartment looking near the river, feeling like all of these people from the other side who had died in 9-11 were coming through my window, as crazy as that sounds, and telling me their stories. And I could not stop it, and I couldn't sleep. And I, you know, was I don't even remember those days very clearly. It was like a couple of day periods. But essentially, I was put in the, the public Brooklyn hospital against my will um, by my mother and a couple of people. And uh, that was just the most ah, excruciatingly shameful, awful turning point of my life. <laughs> um, it wasn't – and it was one of those things where I ended up having to, like, prove that I wasn't crazy to, like, the art therapist to get myself out of there. Um, but, you know, it it really 
put a brakes on a, br- a brake on everything. I mean, literally, we were supposed to be flying the next week to Argentina to start filming more for this documentary. So we had gotten like the equipment and some funding, and it was like all set, and then this happened. And I ended up instead moving back to my parents' house, like tail between my legs, and spending the next couple of the months pretty much crying, sleeping late and crying. And just feeling like I had just failed at everything that I ever set out to do. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, the 22-year-old failure. (laughs) But that's how I felt because I was so ambitious and I was so sure that I was on this path and that this was an important story to tell. And so, yes, that was my devastating loss or, you know, that one of the losses in my life, Um, just the sort of loss. I guess it was sort of a loss of direction in a certain sense because you think you're going along one path and then, like, life swoops in and kicks your – can I swear on this? I mean, kicks – Yeah, absolutely. Like, (laughs) like, comes in and kicks your ass, you know, and you're just like, well, that's – and I'm not going that way at all. Um, And it was devastating. It was – I was humiliated more than anything, actually, and then I – on top of that, I was afraid that I was in, I was crazy because of what had happened. That's absolutely amazing. And from what it sounds like, it sounds like this national tragedy was a catalyst for you to uncover a truth. And then in that quest for truth, it like totally shattered your ideas of identity and direction and future and security and safety and all the things that come with a national tragedy, but also like a loss of home and a loss of using a hand gesture right now, I guess it's like a sure footing, like stable footing. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong there, but that's the sense that I'm getting. No. And, and No, that's true. And I mean, it was sort of the, yeah, the ground, like the ground opened up. It's like that ground opening up, like you wish it would follow you. It didn't quite follow me, kind of like spit me back up, but I wasn't sure anymore about anything. And I also felt like it really, it really, I mean, I grew up in a very unconventional household. So, like, it wasn't odd that I was interested in sort of questioning, like, the powers that be and sort of the status quo and, and, and all of that didn't, wasn't that unusual, actually. What was the, the breaking point, I would say, is this, that my, my sensitive nature like, I'm someone who, like, I, I, I can't watch the news. Like, I don't. I don't watch the news. I don't take in news that way. Like, when something's happening in the world, like, I have people I love who tell me. And, like, I've learned from that experience, from that terrible experience, I've learned how I can take in tragedy in a healthy way mm-hmm. for me. But I was too young at that point to realize, how like, what that sensitivity meant. And it doesn't mean that I'm not strong, because I actually am incredibly strong, capable person, but that event and that loss of stability and baseline just, it rocked my world. And it was, it was, yes, it was, I mean, when somebody, when you question your own, and I think we all go through, maybe, maybe not, I think we all question our sanity at some point, right? We sort of joke about, am I crazy? But when you're actually like, when that's actually like someone on the outside is saying that, it really, really fucks with you. I mean, they basically, you know, I'm an act. I was an actor, so I walked into that emergency room and I was pissed that they were putting me in the hospital. And I put on. I remember thinking, I'm going to put on a show, and I played wow. crazy, like bigger than you can imagine. I just like went for it, and they ended up restraining me and shoving a needle into my arm and knocking me out for a couple of days. 
And it was like a bad public Brooklyn hospital. <laughs> like it was not cushy at all. Um, I feel like I was like, I can sort of remember like the first couple of days sort of in and out, like drooling and wearing like a hospital gown and like wandering around in this weird like holding room. Um, it was bad. And I think that it's, it, it, they told my family that I was probably schizophrenic or bipolar. Like that was how I presented in the emergency room. Now it was that kind of hospital where they didn't even really, like I didn't even see, I don't even remember seeing a therapist. You know what I mean? They just saw how I was acting and was like, oh, she's probably, you know, this is her diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And hearing those words, that had a huge impact on not only how I saw myself, but how my family saw me and how I saw myself, honestly, for, for how I worried about myself for years after that. So it was a great, it's sort of that, the great loss of, of, yes, identity and safety, not just world safety, but safety in one's knowledge that, like, you can trust your own mind. Yeah. And who am I? What what am I? In terms of people slapping labels on you, and then that, that results in your family and friends and, and other people surrounding you possibly perceiving you in a different way. So the next question I have is kind of related to the midpoint between the actual loss and and the start of awakening. So in kind of like that black darkness period, oh, what was it like to to move back in with your parents to have to try and prove that you weren't crazy and then to kind of wrangle with, I mean, not even traveling to Argentina the next week to not fulfill all these plans that you had slated into the future? Ah, I mean, it was, again, it was devastating. It was, But I was also in a, in a, in a frantic state of denial, I would say, just like survival denial. I really thought, I think, in my head, well, I'll go home for a little while, and then I'll be back in New York in no time. And I never went back to live in New York. I did go back and visit, obviously, many times. You know, it's that song, you know, the New York, New York, you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Like, literally, it's only in the past couple of years that that stopped running through my head as, like, proof that I failed. You know, that myth of success in New York as some sort of badge of honor. And I, I'm, you know, I'm making a film, a document, this documentary project has continued or resurfaced and I'm making a film about this whole thing. It's interesting because I look at footage of myself, like basically my, I was in the hospital in November, my birthday is in late November and I went, I went home for Thanksgiving. So it didn't even feel like that weird that I would be home then. And there's footage of me at Thanksgiving and I'm like, I, I don't, like I remember being super devastated and humiliated, but I don't seem that way on video. I seem kind of like comforted to be home. So it's this strange mixture of I was still, you know, so young and I think there was a lot of anger and like culpability pointed outwards, like you guys did this to me. But I think mm-hmm. there was also a sense of being held and like, you know, gosh, it's hard to live in New York. It's hard to I was like hustling. I was working many jobs and you know, trying to keep myself alive there. And there was something of a relief to come back home on some level and to sort of be forced into it. I probably never would have admitted I needed help in any way. So, it, you know, that was, you know, I look back and think it wasn't as bad as it felt, but I did, you know, I, I, my, I felt like my mom didn't trust me. She was kind of scared of me. I was on these, I was highly medicated, which, in my family, like, I didn't even take antibiotics really as a kid, so to suddenly be on these antipsychotic medications was pretty horrible. I remember one medication I was on 
like I had a couple friends come over and we were sort of sitting in my mom's living room shooting the breeze and I'm not a small talk kind of person so that's like not my thing to do anyway but I remember feeling so much rage like I wanted to literally like throw something and I could not express anything I can't explain it I felt like I was trapped inside of my own like my soul was trapped and that was just awful awful and thank goodness I soon got off the medication thanks to my father who supported that and and it was but you know I I mean I was a weepy I felt sorry for myself I felt like a failure I felt like I'd let everyone down and I just felt like I, I was sort of went into hiding you know like it's like and it was winter it was perfect it was snowy it was Chicago it was a horrible cold winter and I basically like cried slept smoked cigarettes and like filmed myself which I know sounds weird but that's like the mode I was in at that stage <laughs> of my life I was I was using the camera this was like way before this was in 2002 so this is like way before people did this all the time um <laughs> like the camera was like my like touchstone it was like my outlet I if I felt lonely like I put my ca- my little camcorder on and started talking to it and I felt like someone was listening even though no one was listening, and I know that makes me does make me sound slightly crazy, but now it's so normal. <laughs> People, right. I was just in the wrong generation. Right, and that. doing video yeah. diaries is like a really uh, video diaries and like the Snapchatting and Instagram stories and Facebook Live is is it's everywhere now. And and doing chronology of your story or this is where I am today is just a huge idea that permeates our culture. But yeah, back in 2002, it's like she's got a camcorder and she's talking to herself. What's she doing? Um, <laughs> I was ahead of and, my time. And, yeah, I love that. And uh, <laughs> you said that you used filming as kind of an outlet to get, I want to say, to get some of your soul out then when it felt like it, your soul was trapped in your body. Was that the first kind of glimpse you got into maybe my life won't be this way permanently? Or what's the first kind of catalyst that brought you back into the world again? Was it expressing yourself through film or was it through another a medium or a book or a practice or that question. And I love that you just use that term terminology, and that's actually what the film is going to be called Into the World, because that's exactly like it feels like I was in this stage of life where you're going out into the world, right, post-college, and then I had this setback, and then I had to figure out how do I go back into the world as this mm-hmm. new person with this, you know, trauma, essentially, that has just happened in my life. So, you know, it's hard to say. I don't pinpoint the filming. The filming of myself was so part of the before the breakdown and the after that I don't look at that as um, as a catalyst. Um, I, I have wonderful friends, and one of them in particular who I've been friends with since grade school and we're still friends, she basically invited me to – well, I want to say two things. So she invited me to to teach a writing workshop with her at the Howard Community Center on the north side of Chicago, which is a rough, you know, lower-income neighborhood. Um, and it was for women only, and it was just this sort of opportunity to get out of the house and be, you know, giving giving in some way, not sort of caught up in my own wounding. Mm-hmm. So that was like, I think, so this was probably in February of 2003. So I'd been, like, in my house, I feel like. For like two months. I mean, I may be exaggerating. I may have gone out. It was all a blur um, of sadness and crying. So, and I'm a very extroverted person in some ways. So I'm sure I did have more social interaction than I'm thinking, but I felt so awful. But this yeah. time I, I went to, to this community center and, and a lot happened because of that. A, 
I met the woman who introduced me to my husband, which is kind of amazing. Like the first time I leave my house, that's what happens. Um, and I've been married for almost 14 years. So, and then I also have this incredible, I can still, it's like a very, I've taught a lot of different things over the years. And I just have the, I have this vivid memory of that class in particular and leading them through some, like a walk through your life exercise where you literally just walk in a, like walk through the room. And I led them through sort of remembering from childhood to the present and watching them do that. And then the writing that came out of it was so powerful for me to be facilitating. And it helped me remember that I have some gifts that I can help people too. And that my, you know, that basically the human, that we're the human condition, that we all have suffering. We're all struggling in a way, how grateful and blessed I am. Like I had this thing happen and I had so many people to hold me and like a lot of people don't. Um, so there was a lot of just beauty in coming out of my house, kind of coming back into the world and feeling like, okay, I have a purpose here. I'm not, my purpose is not to sit in my parents' house and feel sorry for myself. Like that's not why I'm alive. And, and that was beautiful. Um, and then the second part I wanted to say was there is, like, at the end, if you watch the trailer for my film, um, the, the last part of it is me filming myself saying, I'm smoking a cigarette, I'm out on the back porch, and I'm, like, saying over and over, I'm making a documentary, I'm making a documentary, I'm making a documentary. And it was, like, an affirmation I needed to remember, like, this is not over. Like, I still, I will come back from this. Like, this is not the end of the story. Um, I'm not going to go and, like, dig myself a hole and just, like, live small now. That's just not who I am. After that time, like, around that time, I think I stopped turning the camera on myself, and I turned the camera to other people for the next 10-plus years and yeah. have just spent those years really, like, being curious about other people and learn and their experiences and what makes life work. I mean... I've always been a person that's just seeking and questioning and, and curious. And I mean, I remember what I did. I think my parents who ended up divorced, but that's another story. They, when they had their 30th anniversary, I remember going home to visit them. This was before all this happened and just literally saying to them, like, how do you do life? What, like, how do you do it? Cause like, it felt so mysterious. Like how do, how do you, how can, I know there's like a word for it now, right? People say like adulting, but like, again, there was none of, there was, there was none of this then. Like we just, like, we're expected, I feel like my generation was in this, I don't know how old you are, but, like, we were in this, like, weird in-between period where people still have the illusion, like, you could just, like, get a job and have a pension and all that, and 9-11 really changed the entire paradigm for our world, and and I feel like the ground was shaken under all of us, so, and that included, like, the industries that we'd always relied on to be sort of safety, yeah. so... Um, yeah, I, I was always wondering, like, how do you do life? Like, what is life about? <laughs> and so I spent the, the next years, like, asking other people that. And it's only been in the past, like, year-ish, but, like, only in spurts because I'm so – it still feels so vulnerable to me to, like, come back to pointing the camera at myself and, and starting to, like, reflect on this journey myself more. Yes. There's something, I believe uh, it was in one of – Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's books about time because everybody perceives these timelines for grief like you should be over it in a year or 
um, in six months you can start dating again. Like people like to put a lot of blocks or time markers on grief. And she's like, I don't really want to put any timelines on grief other than to say the farther you get out from your loss in terms of years, um, the more life experience you've had to incorporate when you look back at it. That just to me meant that you will have experienced more losses, um, but conversely have experienced more joys and met other people like the ones in this class that you took who can not just reassure you, but can show you through their own lives that mm-hmm. that you have not you have not been alone this whole time. You've not been alone. Um, and that's that's really beautiful to me. I'm actually really curious. What did your what did your parents say when you asked them how to life? What was their answer to that question? I mean, I remember we were at like an Indian restaurant, and I just um, I ended up writing a song about it. Actually, life force and learning to forgive. Like oh, the, like you beautiful. just yeah yeah. I asked the lyrics I wrote where I asked you what it means to live life force and learning to forgive. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. I've got chills right now. That's so, oh my gosh. That's so beautiful. So yeah, that's another one of those like moments that's just really vivid in my memory. And Mm -hmm. and I think, so I also take things to extremes. Anyone who knows me probably knows that. And so I, in what you're, to sort of relate to what you're talking about, my next year, the next year after my law, my breakdown, I went to Argentina, like I was I had planned, with a very different purpose, because it's a long story, but I had originally been going to film something entirely differently, but I ended up going there and filming a lot of Mothers of the Disappeared. I don't know how much you know about Argentina, but there was a terrible military dictatorship from 1976 to 1983, and over 30,000, many innocent people were kidnapped, tortured, and killed. And the Mothers of the Disappeared have had been protesting ever since to know what happened to their children, essentially. Wow. And they're still protesting. And it's amazing. It's amazing, like, resiliency. And I went and interviewed them. as a, I, I think I thought I was doing it for different reasons than I realized now I was doing it for, as is often the case. But I think it was, like, the most extreme pain I could imagine someone suffering, like, not only is your kid probably dead, but, like, you never really know what happened to them, and you know it was probably horrible, right? Yeah, like, yeah. they were probably suffered. They probably <laughs> suffered a lot. They were treated. They were tortured, and you never got to see them again. So that's just, like, now, especially now that I'm a mother, like, I can't imagine a worse thing. And to talk to these women and to just see the, like, the spark in them and how it didn't kill them, and not only that, how it gave them, in a sense, a lot of these women, it gave them a purpose to continue the fight of their children, but also just to continue to fight for their own, like, souls and life and and that spark of humanity and for what's right. So it was this huge, beautiful learning experience for me that ultimately, again, it'll be somehow incorporated into this film, but I could never figure out a way to say something new about all of that. But gosh, did it serve my learning as a, as a human in terms of what we're capable of and how resilient we are. And I think, you know, there's a lot of ambiguous loss there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't even have a ceremony. There's no, you know, they, a lot of these women agree that they would never say that their children were dead because they have no bones to bury for that story. Yeah. There's uh, well, there, and there's no bones to a, a story either. That's interesting. Yeah. They said you said no bones to bury, and I said no bones for a story. So yeah, even having both. wow, these these physical and these like idea truths about the things that we lose are really important to us. I'm interested also 
there's a quote going around the internet that says, uh, when something bad in your life happens, just yell plot twist and move on. Um, <laughs> as if you're living a book or living a story. And that kind of reminds mm. me of, of your film and your work and, and what you do. Um, but it seems like a lot of the work that you do in your belonging in Boulder and belonging in the USA is a lot about belonging and kind of searching for the truth about where we fit in. And mm. I wanted to know what your truths are surrounding not just your loss, but like your loss's role in your entire life, in your story right now. What do you believe to be true about it? Hmm, that's a great question. I mean, I feel like as much as, like, and that's why it's, and it's an interesting thing to call it a loss even, because I can see it as a loss, but actually it's been the sort of catalyst for everything, right? I mean, not that there's anything wrong with wanting to be a movie star, but I feel like I've done a lot of really awesome things aside from, could I have ever even been a movie star? I don't know. But, like, in pursuing these bigger questions, that has created so much meaning in my life. And I don't know if I would have gone about that in the same way. And I think it's led to an openness and, a, and an empathy that until I was ready, I mean, this is some, this story is something that I would not even talk to, like the woman I was just talking to before I talked to you and, and the friend of mine who's making the Into the World film with me, who was my roommate at the time, I've known since I was five. I wouldn't even talk to them about this until last year. Like, and I'm someone who talks about everything very openly and like has no, has no shame, let's say, right? I love the Ani DeFranco song, Shameless. Like that was like my mantra mm-hmm. until that experience. Yeah. And then that happened and I have carried so much shame around because of it, because I thought if people know this about me, and this is what I think is true for everyone. Like everyone is carrying around something like if people knew this about me, they would fill in the blank, think I was crazy, not want to know me anymore judge me whatever it is like this this experience was my that where I was just like I can't let anyone into this secret and so you know besides the people who already knew about it at the time it happened friends that I made years after I told very few and I told them with trepidation and then let it never stop talked about it again it was not something I was very comfortable with until I realized it was the thing that was most holding me back and keeping me small it was like, you know, that I'm not an AA, but I know the, the sort of AA thing, you're only as sick as your secrets. Like, it was my secret. It was my yes. thing that I just didn't want anyone to know. So I feel like having this new opportunity to realize, oh, my gosh, the thing that, first of all, the art I thought I was making back then is not at all what I was making. I needed all this perspective and time to be able to look back and say, wow, this is what I'm making. This is what this is about. Part of that is the journey of revisiting the past and healing some of that, cleaning it up. Um, I mean, I'm still in a place where where I need to talk to my mom about that experience and I need to clear that, you know, clear up the energy there. But it's, it's given me a gift in so many ways of when I interview people who have been through terrible loss, even though I don't share that with them, the fact that that happened to me has just given me so much insight into human condition, human pain, what it means to have to sort of live with duality. Because I think anyone who knows me, like, would somewhat be surprised that that happened to me. Mm-hmm. It's not something I, I wear on my sleeve. And it's also just, like, not something that I've let define me in a certain way. And yet, on the other side, it's totally defined me but just in a secret way. 
I think that the truth that you're finding and the truth that I have found and the truth that a lot of people who have lost various things over the course of their lives are finding is that the truth is transformation. Ultimately, mm-hmm. that's, that is, that's what we learn from, from the things we do. We don't, ultimately, we don't learn these little like platitudes that people throw at us, like everything happens for a reason and all in good time and, you know, who hasn't needed another angel or like they're up there, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But Your like, darkest hour is only um, 60 minutes, blah, blah, blah. Right. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Oh, ugh. But yeah. the truth is, the inevitability of loss seems to be, from what I can observe and the people I talk to, is that things transform and change, whether that's your perspective, whether that's, you know, what your family looks like, whether that's, you know, the field of study you decide to go into or what your art looks like or or, or anything like that. And it's just really, it's really cool and fascinating to hear that represented in your story. And I guess the last thing I want to touch on with you is if you have advice or encouragement or, like, pieces of of wisdom to offer anybody who is going through a similar situation right now? I think, I, I guess, because there's so many forms of loss, right? And I think, again, we think of it often as like death. There's a lot of deaths in our lives that aren't actual, there's a physical death. Um, like my loss was a death of a self that I thought mattered. And in a, in a sense, a huge death of like a e- huge part of my ego. Not that I've lost my ego completely, believe me. But I think that like to let yourself cry, tears are healing. I am not a natural crier. I, um, I, I used to always I hate crying. I don't hate crying anymore. I think I know it's liquid healing. To feel what you're feeling because if you don't, it'll be there for you right on the other side. Like grief waits. That's a truism, but it's true. And also to be patient about it because you can't rush transformation. You can't rush awareness like there is such thing i believe as divine timing no matter what you believe divinity is but like the universe or whatever you can't just you don't get to control it all i couldn't be making this film at any other point than right now i couldn't be making this tv web series at any other point but right now like there is a timing that is bigger than all of us and that when you're going through big changes and big loss and um, what feels, I think the word loss, I actually, like, would question. Like, I know that's sort of the mm-hmm. premise of your show, this idea of loss. But, like, I don't think of much as a loss. I mean, in the moment, that's it might feel cool. that way. But ultimately, is it? Yeah, what and that's I an lose? idea that's stuck up, in, stuck up in my head, too, is other than other than maybe, like, a physical home or a physical house or, like, that job that I had or like what did I actually lose because as you go through the process of coming back and kind of renegotiating what your life looks like that's a really beautiful question to ask is what did I really lose the people the pieces the sort of the tangible that I need is still with me and and I also am just someone who makes it makes a point of learning from things even when the lessons are hard (laughs) (laughs) I think that helps when you're trying to come back from something that seems like you can never come back from. Right. Yeah, I totally hear you on that. The last question I want to ask you, I'd love for you to say in your own words, what projects you're working on right now, where people can find you on on social media, where they can view the trailer for the documentary about not just your breakdown, but um, other projects that you're working on right now as well. Thank you. Yes. The sort of lost story you heard the most about, you can find more about that at intotheworldthefilm.com. There's a trailer there. There's some info um, that project is 
in certain ways, I'm taking it very slowly, so it's taking a little bit of a backseat right now to this web series that I'm producing and creating called Belonging in the USA, Stories from Our Neighbors, and that you can find at belongingintheusa.com. There's also a Facebook page, Belonging in the USA, and a Facebook group, Belonging in the USA, which is where we're going to have, we're going to create a safe space for people to share these stories about belonging and fitting in and also place to be empathetic with people who we may think we don't have anything in common with. Um, and then my, you know, I run a business also called Legacy Connections Films, and that's LegacyConnectionsFilms.com. Oh, that's lovely. I just absolutely love that. Well, cool. Thank you so much for sharing everything, uh, your story, where people can reach you, and then just the, the process of coming back and what that felt like and those ideas and things that ran through your head. It's been lovely chatting with you today. Thank you so much, Shelby. It's been wonderful. And yeah. um, I am excited to follow you and hear all about the rest of the people it will be on. It'll be a great podcast, I'm sure. So that's the end of our first full-length episode of Coming Back. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to the eloquent Arielle Nobile. She came back by telling her story in the presence of others and reminding herself of her ability to contribute her talents to the world. Call or email and let us know if her story resonated with you. 312-725-3043 or shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to check out Arielle's work, you can find her personal documentary about her breakdown into the world at intotheworldthefilm.com. You can also find her latest project, Belonging in the USA, at belongingintheusa.com. I've watched both of these trailers and they are absolutely amazing. I would also love to know what you think of Cheryl Sandberg's new book, Option B, and if you tried any of the tips we talked about for anyone coming up to you and asking, how are you, after a loss, when you're tired of talking about it. This podcast is brand spanking new, so I would be so, so grateful if you would rate and review it in iTunes and tell a friend to subscribe. We will all experience loss within our lifetime, so these stories and resources are so worth hearing about. Thank you also to the amazing, talented Addie Goldstein for composing our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail at 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, it was beautiful sharing this space and this time with you. Thank you so much for listening. I see you. I am proud of you and the work you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. See you next time.